the political side of it, and then there's the real story. There's a lot to unpack right there. Wasn't quite the interview I thought that was going to be. There's a reason for it. This will be officially my favorite podcast I've ever done. This morning, for the country's most famous political dynasty, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is here for the president's presidential race. That is time to heal a divided nation and return the power to the people. Robert Kennedy Jr. And so I've come here today to declare our independence from the tyranny of corruption, which robs us of affordable lives, our belief in the future, and our respect for each other. But to do that, I must first declare my own independence. Independence from the Democratic Party. And from all other political parties. I haven't made this decision lightly. It's very painful for me to let go of the party of my uncles, my father, my grandfather, and both of my great-grandfathers but my sacrifice is nothing compared to the risk our founding fathers took when they signed the Declaration of Independence 247 years ago. They knew that if their revolution failed, every last one of them would be hanged. They chose to place everything on the line. When John Adams put his pen down after adding his signature to the Declaration, he turned to those present and he said to them, sink or swim, Live or die, survive or perish, from this day on, I am with my country. My mom would freak out if she saw this. So we, uh, we asked a small group of people to be here tonight so we could, you know, ask some of the most important people in my life to help with the campaign. And... Uh, I thought one of the most articulate things I've seen ever said about the current state of what's happening uh, with Russia and NATO, and I wondered if you could just elaborate any further on um, the comments you made at the conference about um, what's happening uh, in the Middle East and the Ukraine. Well, those are two, two, two very big uh, and different subjects, but uh, Ukraine, you know, I'm, I'm against wars, but there are necessary and just wars, and then there are wars of choice. And what I would say is that most of the wars that we've been involved in over the past hundred years have been wars of choice that we shouldn't have been involved in. And in fact, I would say the only war that was not a war of choice was, the, uh, was World War II. My, World War I was a war of choice we shouldn't have gone over. We shouldn't have been involved. My grandfather was a, a, a very, very big advocate at that time uh, for staying out of that war. He lost a lot of friendships. Um, but Ukraine is a war of choice. It's a war, you know, I'm not excusing Putin. Putin uh, did not need to go into Ukraine. His invasion of Ukraine is illegal. Um, but we need to understand that the comic book depictions that we are fed by the media and by government agencies are just that. And it's the same thing that we got 
during the Iraq war when we were told that Saddam Hussein had bombed the World Trade Center, that he had, uh, he was, he had orchestrated the anthrax attacks and it all turned out to be, and that he had weapons of mass destruction. And that's why we needed to go in there. We ended up destroying one of the most important countries in the Middle East. It was the principal bulwark strategically um, against the uh, Iranian expansion. And uh, Iran, as a result of our intervention in the war, had killed a million Iraqis, a, a more, more Iraqis than Saddam Hussein ever killed. We killed during that war, and we pushed Iraq into a proxy posture with Iran. And that actually is what um, is the etiology of the Gaza attacks and the Hezbollah and the and the Yemen attacks are all because now we unleashed Gaza, we unleashed Iran on the rest of the world. The Shia, there's a Shia majority in Iraq, and Saddam Hussein was holding them in check. And as soon as he was eliminated, his followers went and created ISIS and then started another civil war in um, Syria, which drove six million refugees up to Europe, destabilized every, all the Western democracies in Europe, uh, created Brexit as a direct result of that war. The riots that are going on in France today are the direct result of ultimately the Iraq war cost us $8 trillion. So, you know, and each time we're given these comic book depictions that there's a supervillain who's about to do something terrible and attack the world and that we need to stop him and that we're fighting for democracy. And we need to be more skeptical about that because we've got a lot of apparatus in our country, the intelligence, the military apparatus, and what Eisenhower warned us against, the military industrial complex. Uh, that has created this system of captured the agencies, the CIA and the agencies of government, and deployed them to provide us with a continuous pipeline of new wars. So I'll, I'll briefly summarize um, what the, the, a contrasting narrative to what we hear about Ukraine. Um, the, and that story begins in 1992 when the Berlin Wall came down. Gorbachev did something very courageous, which, which made it so that he really could never even go back to Russia. You know, his funeral was there, but it wasn't even attended by government, any government officials. And, and he did something which was to allow us, to allow East and West Germany to, uh, to align under one government and then to remove 450,000 Soviet troops and allow NATO troops, an adversarial army, to move into their bases and their barracks. And Gorbachev said, I'm going to do this. He went to Bush, he went to uh, John Major in England and said, I'm going to dismantle the Soviet Union, but I want one promise from you, that you will not move NATO to the east. James Baker, who was then the Secretary of State, famously said, we will not move NATO one inch to the east. And then in 1997, a group of neocons took over a government led by Zbigniew Brzezinski during the Clinton era, and they came up with a plan, published a plan, and said, we're going to move NATO right up to the Russian borders, a thousand miles to the east, into 15 countries. Why do they want to do that? Well, one of the major reasons is 
that every time you move NATO into a new country, that new nation has to conform its um, weapons purchases to, to NATO's specifications, which means it has to buy virtually all of its weapons from Raytheon, General Dynamics, Boeing, Lockheed, and Northrop Grumman. And so, and those are the biggest contributors to Congress. And so you have both political parties, the Republicans and Democrats, who are being encouraged to constantly move NATO into these countries, and all the think tanks in Washington uh, that are, that are, you know, provide these generals to go speak on CNN and Fox and everybody else. And if you see who they're really working for, they're all funded by those, you know, groups, the guys who go up on CNN and say, yeah, Putin's a terrible threat, he wants to invade all of Europe, you know, they're working for arms manufacturers. So, um, uh, when, when Brzezinski, during the Clinton administration, made this proposal, George Kennan, who is our principal, most famous, deified American diplomat, he was the architect of the containment policy during the Cold War, he said, this is insane. He said, if you move NATO to the east, you're going to force a Soviet response, a, a violent response. He said, why aren't we doing to Russia? They lost the Cold War. We defeated them. Why aren't we acting the same generous victors that we did after World War II and make a Marshall Plan and integrate them into Europe? And, um, and Bill Pierce, who was then the Secretary of, uh, of Defense, now he's the, uh, the head of the CIA, but he, th he said he was going to resign if we went forward, because it was so dangerous, so reckless. Bill Perry, who was the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, also threatened to resign and said, this is the craziest idea ever. Well, we went ahead and we did it. And we, um, and then, and we moved uh, NATO into 14 countries, and we put, we walked away simultaneously uh, during the Trump administration, the Obama administration, from the two nuclear missiles treaties that we had with the Soviet Union that forbade intermediate range nuclear mi missiles. So we said, we're walking unilaterally. The Russians didn't want to do it, but we did it. And then we put Aegis missile systems, which are Lockheed systems, which are uh, launch the nuclear Tomahawk weapons in Romania and Poland, 12 minutes from the Kremlin. So in 12 minutes, we could decapitate the entire Kremlin leadership. And that is destabilizing to the region. And the Russians were screaming and saying, but whatever you do, a red line for us is Ukraine. You cannot put NATO into Ukraine. And so then in 2014, the CIA spends $5 billion to overthrow the democratically elected government of Ukraine. This was a government that was trying to stay neutral and we overthrew them. And, and a month before that, Victoria Newland, who's the king of the neocons now and is the deputy secretary of state, made a telephone call to the U.S. Embassy in Kiev that was recorded. So that recording, any of you can go and listen to it. And she picked, a month before the coup, the entire Ukrainian cabinet that we were going to install. We installed, we overthrew the democratically elected government of the Ukraine. 
We installed our own government in Ukraine, sympathetic to the United States. That government immediately, the first day, passed a law against the Russian language. Half the people in Ukraine are Russian-speaking. So in Donbass, Lugansk, and Crimea. And, they, and, and forbidding a lot of other cultural manifestations for those groups. So they began protesting, and the Kiev government began firing on them and killed 14,000 of them. And, and Donbass and Lugansk then vote to join Russia. 90 to 10, 9 to 1. And, um, and Putin says, I don't want them at, in Russia. I want them to maintain, stay part of Ukraine, but let's make sure they're protected. Let's do a treaty. So he negotiated a treaty with Britain, France, and England, and Russia, and Germany, to um, call the Minsk Accords. The Minsk Accords did three things. One, it denazified the new Ukrainian government. Two, there were four ministers of that government that, had, that were, that were ultra-nationalists, and that's a very nice description of them. Um, it also uh, gave uh, independent, or it, gave, it made Ukraine, or Donbass and Lugansk, quasi-autonomous regions in Russia, like Quebec is in Canada, where they could continue to speak their own language and protect their people. Most importantly, it, it forbade Ukraine from going into, into um, uh, NATO, into NATO. And so, then in 2019, this young actor and comedian, Vladimir Zelensky, one runs for president. He's never had anything to do with politics. He had a popular TV show. Do you know what that TV show is about? It was about a comedian who becomes president of the Ukraine. He then runs for president of the Ukraine and his only issue is that peace, that he's going to sign the Minsk Accords. And, uh, and he wins with 70% of the vote, a landslide, because everybody wants peace in Ukraine. He gets in there and immediately pivots and says, I'm not going to sign it. And that's when Russia went into Crimea. Because Putin, and you put yourself in his shoes, which my uncle, President Kennedy, always said you got to do just how he stayed out of going to war with Khrushchev during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Citizens, this government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. And he understood, understood that, uh, that Putin uh, knew that if, 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 that, if that U.S. government, puppet government, invited the U.S. Navy into Sevastopol, which is the the Soviet port for 347 years has been the only warm water port that Russia has. And okay, now the, the, the U.S. Navy is going to go in there. So he goes into Crimea without firing a shot. The Crimean people welcome him. 
as a liberator, and they take over Crimea. And he, he, uh, he sends 40,000 troops into Ukraine, because they say they're not going to sign the Minsk Accords. And we say, oh, look, he's, he's moving to take over Europe. It's 40,000 troops. He doesn't intend to take over Ukraine. Ukraine has a population of 44 million people. What he said at that time is, I just want them back at the negotiating table. He goes to the negotiating table in April of 2022, and, they, and the U.S. will not help Zelensky. He wants to end the war. So he goes to Naftali Bennett, who's the prime minister of Israel, and Erdogan, who's the prime minister of Turkey, and says, will you help me negotiate peace with the Russians? And they say, yeah. They negotiate a peace agreement, which is called Minsk II. Minsk it basically does the same thing. And uh, Zelensky initials it, the Russians initial it, and Putin begins withdrawing his troops. It does the same thing. It says you can't bring NATO into Ukraine. And, um, and President Biden then sends Boris Johnson over and forces Zelensky to tear up that agreement. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that happened? Here's how we know. All of the negotiators have now come clean, including Naftali Bennett. And you can go on YouTube and look at his speech. The Ukrainian negotiators, the Russian negotiators, the Turkish negotiators have all said that's exactly what happened. So, you know, and that month, April, uh, we, you know, uh, President or uh, Lloyd Austin, who's the Secretary of Defense, is asked, "Why are you in? Why are we in Ukraine?" And he says, "We're in Ukraine to degrade the Russian army and exhaust its capacity to fight anywhere else in the world." So that's not about Ukrainian people; it's about a geopolitical proxy war with Russia. And President Biden, when he was asked that month, "Why are we in Ukraine?" His answer was regime change for Vladimir Putin. Well, that also, and by the way, that also is not for the good of the Ukrainian people. It's a U.S. geopolitical objective. And by the way, this war has just done just the opposite. It's made Russia much more economically independent, economically robust. It's created BRICS, which is a huge threat to the American dollar. It's exposed America as a paper tiger. And it's, it has rocketed uh, Putin's popularity in Russia to the highest apex of his career. Oh, it's not, and then it's pushed Russia into, a, uh, into an alliance with China, which is probably the worst geopolitical outcome that we could imagine. Oh, it's a bad war. It was a war of choice, not excusing Putin. Uh, but, you know, we need to understand our role in provoking that war. So that right there is the reason why I think he's the most important political candidate in today's times. I really, you guys have to understand what he just said, the articulation of what he said, being able to make us all understand what has happened here. Um, as someone who um, is part, unfortunately, of the industrial complex, who owns a defense business, I will tell you that this is the most troubling thing when I listen to what Bobby said about this, um, it resonates to me about why, you, how important you are and how are you important to the country. And so I wanna transition, which I thought was amazing. You really have one of the most um, amazing 
understandings of geopolitical politics I've ever seen, ever heard. Just really amazing. Um, and we got to get this message out to people that there is a different choice here. Um, and I, I want to ask about your path to the presidency. I think that um, how, how does it happen? How do you see yourself getting there? I've, I've seen some things about getting 5% from certain areas, battleground states and stuff. Can you articulate to everybody how you see a path to beat the president? Yeah, I mean, I, we have nine months now, and as you pointed out before, my, uh, I, the, you know, the Quinnipiac poll showed me in the six battleground states, I'm beating President Trump and President Biden with all Americans under 45. And the Harvard-Harris poll shows me winning in people under 35. It confirms that, but it did under 35 in uh, all across the country. Both polls also show me dominating the field in independence. Oh, independents are the biggest cohort. This would be the first election in history where the independent people who are self-identified independents outnumber Republicans and Democrats. And so, you know, I'm winning in those, and that's with um, my really only publicity has been podcasts and, you know, long-form interviews on, uh, on uh, I would say, non-conventional sources. So, in, in the mainstream media, I get nothing but bad publicity. And they will not let me do live interviews. So tonight, on Saturday, I had my first live interview on mainstream media on Michael Schmirkanish. Tonight, I had my first live interview. It's not live, but live to tape with NBC, and it was actually a very fair interview. And what I think is going to happen is that because of my poll numbers, that wall of resistance to me that just will not allow me on mainstream media is breaking. The only demographic that I really lose in is the demographic I ought to actually do best in, which is baby boomers. So, thank you. Um, so, and they, you know, I think the reason for that is that cohort gets its news from, uh, from ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, and MSNBC. And, it, and then the New York Times and the Washington Post, and if that is the information bubble, if I was living in that ecosystem, I would have a very low opinion of myself. Because, you know, all they do is say, I'm a quack, I'm a, a you know, anti-Semite, racist, all of these just things that are designed to cancel me, to shut my mouth, and, um, and that, you know, I'm anti-science, I'm a baby killer, all of this stuff. And, uh, and then when people actually see me talking on these, I'm, I'm called, incidentally, an anti-Semite. At the same time, I'm being called a Zionist. Oh, you know, it's, it's like a disconnect. Um, um, but, you know, what I am hoping is that when they start seeing me in longer form interviews, that, um, and what we see is, you know, kids come up to us all the time and say, my parents hated you, I love you, I made them watch the Joe Rogan podcast, and they converted in 10 minutes. And so our, you know, our challenge is to get old people to watch a podcast, which they don't, you know, know how to do. Oh, my son, incidentally, I have a 28-year-old son, Connor, 
And I said to him, have you ever seen an evening news program? And Connor went to Harvard, he's very well informed. He actually went over and fought in the Ukraine on the side of the Ukrainians. He fought in the Kharkiv offensive. He had, you know, lots of firefights with the Russians and, you know, and, but he's very well educated and very well informed. I said, have you ever seen an evening news show in your life? And he was like, nope, never. So that generation is just is living in a completely different place, you know, in terms of information intake and people who are in my generation. And they're, you know, I think it's a beautiful thing, actually, because this is kind of off the subject, but my kids grew up in the, you know, swipe right age and they have no attention. And I'd say, you have the intention of a, like, of a lightning bug, you know. And, um, but they will sit for three hours and listen to Jordan Peterson or Joe Rogan or Aubrey Marcus or Lex Friedman. And it's pretty extraordinary. You know, that whole generation is like that. And those are the people I'm doing well with. So my challenge is to get this other. Now, I'll just say this. I'm at, in the most recent round of the best polling, I'm, I'm at 20 to 24. Michigan, I'm at 27. Technically, all I need to do if it's a three-way tie is get to 34. So that's, I only need four and a half points from each of those other candidates over the next nine months. And I've been gaining about a point a month. So it's within, and, and I, I would win decisively if I get 40 points, if I get up to 40 percentage points because, you know, nobody can, um, because that's, it's winner take all. The last thing I would say to you is that even if I got only 33 electoral votes, which is just a couple of states, one really big state, um, based upon past performance, neither side would be able to uh, win the election because none of them would get 270 electoral votes, which you need. What happens then? It goes to a contingent election where the, uh, the Senate chooses the vice president and the House chooses the president, but in a weird metrics, they, each state gets one vote. Normally you would say that means President Trump will be president because Republicans outnumber Democrats by nine, nine states. But in fact, neither of them, under the 12th Amendment, you need 26 votes to win. And neither of them can get that. And no Democrat is ever going to vote for Donald Trump. Their career's over. No Republican is ever going to vote for Joe Biden because their career is over. They can't go home if they do that. And so they're going to almost certainly have to find a compromise candidate. And they're not allowed to do any other business until they settle it. And, you know, because my popularity, for many Republicans who are voting for Trump, if, they, if they're asked in poll after poll, who is your second choice? They don't say Ron DeSantis. They don't say Nikki Haley. They say me. And that's true with a lot of Democrats, too. And so, I, you know, I'm the most, uh, I, so anyway, I think I have a path to victory from a number of different, you know, I think options. you do, too. I think you do, too. Hey, I, I wanted to say earlier, when I started this, I said the path to victory for Bobby makes sense. It seems like, you know, 
I'm one of those people who used to say, everyone says this is the most important election, every presidential candidate says the most important election. You hear that a lot. But this is one of those times where I've come over to the other side and think that this is one of the most important elections ever, if not the most important, right? Nothing's more important. The last breath was great, but the next breath is the most important. And I'm wondering, when you become president, how do you fix what seems to be like a really divided, crazy, uh, if, you know, if you have a mask, you're not, it, the whole thing is bizarre to me. And I wonder how you heal the country in the sense of um, getting everyone to at least have some common ground. Yeah, I mean, that's what I promised nine months ago when I declared in Boston that, you know, our country is now at a, a level of polarization that's probably the worst since the American Civil War. When I was a kid in 1968, when my dad ran, it was similarly divided. You know, there were riots that burned down 127 cities. There were, you know, kids being killed by soldiers on our campuses. There were buildings being blown up by the weather underground, et cetera. So it was very, it's been divided before. What I said is that my job during my campaign and, my, and during the eight years of my presidency is to end that rancor and, find, and focus on the values that we all share in common as Americans, rather than the, um, you know, these culture war issues that are allowed to keep us, that are being used to keep us apart. And what I've found since starting this campaign is that those landscapes that are occupied by the things that, that we all feel strongly about are much, much larger than the, than the little issues that, you know, the guns, the abortion, the border, et cetera, which are all important, but, and climate. If you, that, that, that it's much larger, and I'll give you some examples. By the way, I have supporters who are who are pro, you know, Second Amendment absolutists and people who are pro gun control, abortion and pro life um, uh, supporters. I have vaccinated people and anti-vax. So I'm, I'm, you know, people are starting are willing to accept a candidate who does not agree with them on every issue, but is is respectful of them, is willing to listen, has an open mind, and can demonstrate again and again that he can be persuaded by different points of view that are outside of these ideological lockstep. And, um, and on the border, you know, I, switched, I saw the border, I went there, and my position switched diametrically because I saw what was happening, you know, four or five months ago. And there's many issues like that. So. What I found is everybody in this country agrees that veterans you know, ought to be taken care of. At the PTSD, you know, we ought to make that a priority. <laughs> the wives of veterans should not be eating and their families should not be eating at soup kitchens. That, you know, they have to be a priority. Everybody wants a good education system in our country. And we can do that. You know, we need school choice so that the marketplace will give us, will allow parents to choose the best educational options for their kids and, and reward the, uh, the schools that are doing a good job. And make the schools, again, the servants of, you know, of, the, of, the, uh, of children and, and their parents. 
Um, everybody wants, and nobody likes the idea that the Mexican drug cartels are running U.S. border policy and that there's seven million people who've come in illegally in three years. Nobody likes that. Everybody now sees that it's crushing the social service systems in New York and all these other cities. Every city in this country is now a border city. And they're getting swamped and destroyed. New York City recently cut firefighters by 5%, police by 5%, healthcare by 5%, education by 5% in order to pay for the, you know, the, the, the cost of, of servicing this, uh, this influx. 110,000 migrants have come in. Um, everybody wants to protect the environment in this country. If the only thing that you're willing to talk about is climate change, then you're going to have a fist fight. But if you want to talk about clean air, clean water, uh, regenerative agriculture, ending toxic exposure to our children, um, protecting wildlife, protecting our sacred places, Everybody knows there's no such thing as Republican children or Democratic children. And when, you know, when I was leading the battle in Flint, Michigan to get the lead out of the water, we had Hell's Angels standing shoulder to shoulder with urban blacks. And, we, and the same thing at Standing Rock, because we didn't sell it as a climate issue. We said it's about protecting a sacred place. And we had Republicans, Democrats, business, labor, everybody come to that. And it's the way that we talk about these issues and we talk about it in a way that appeals to the highest ideals of our country. Um, everybody wants to end the chronic disease epidemic. No politician is talking about it. The cause of diabetes now in this country, of treating it, is now bigger than our defense budget. You know, 30% of kids now have diabetes. When I was a kid, a pediatrician would see one diabetic kid in his lifetime. And now it's one out of every three kids who walks through his office. Nobody's asking about why this is happening. 50 to 60% of adults have diabetes. And the Alzheimer epidemic is related to diabetes. Virtually everybody who has Alzheimer's has a diabetes diagnosis, and scientists, we, Todd and I were talking about this earlier, scientists and, and researchers are now classifying diabetes as type, or, or, or Alzheimer's as type 3 diabetes. So this is about cellular, cellular deregulation, and it's happening because we're poisoning an entire generation with bad food, with processed foods, with neonicotinoids, with atrazine. The the four uh, percent of our of our GDP went to healthcare when my uncle was president. Today, twenty percent does. Um, it's four point three trillion dollars. Our our entire defense budget, including national security, veterans, everything, is one point three trillion. Healthcare is four point three trillion, and ninety three percent of of uh, Medicare claims are for chronic disease. Six percent of kids had chronic disease when my uncle was president, 60% today. Nobody's saying anything. These auto, all these autoimmune diseases, which I never heard of, rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile diabetes, these exotic illnesses like Crohn's disease, lupus. I, I have a lot of young people in my audience, almost all of them have something. 
It's hard to find a young person who does not have a neurodevelopmental disorders, ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, tics, Tourette's syndrome, ASD, autism. Our kids are all on Adderall. They're all on SSRIs, 40%. Benzos, why? Doctors didn't just start prescribing these for no reason. We have damaged this entire generation. We have poisoned them. And the autism rates have gone from one in 10,000 in my generation, 70-year-old men, one in 10,000 of people my age has autism. And I'm talking full-blown autism, not, you know, your quirky uncle with, you know, Asperger's. I'm talking about non-verbal, non-toilet train, uh, head-banging, stimming, toe-walking, hand-flapping, uh, uh, all of these, you know, characteristic tactile and, and light sensitivities, that, people like that, one in 10,000 in my generation, one in every 34 kids in my kids' generation, one in every 22 boys. The military can't recruit kids anymore. They're so badly damaged. And it's bankrupting our country, and it's rising exponentially, and nobody is mentioning it. And we have a medical cartel, which is our regulatory agencies, the pharmaceutical companies, the doctors, the hospitals, that, which are all owned by hedge funds, are now making a killing on chronic disease. And the sicker we get, the richer they get, the insurance industry. The sicker we are, the richer they are. And nobody is saying anything. No, not one presidential candidate ever mentions this. It's the biggest issue. And nobody's debating me. Your kids are all affected. You know, you cannot find a kid in this country who's not affected. And nobody's talking about it. And I'm going to fix it. And I know exactly how to fix it. Oh. <laughs> wow, that's powerful. I, I saw Bill Maher over the weekend basically call Joe Biden a liar, saying Congress had to give him some document to save the border. I don't know what the document was. Um, he basically called him a liar. What is the, what is the solution? I mean, in the, in the shortest way you can about the border, what, it seems to be that it's playing right into what Trump talks about. I mean, this is really, was his agenda item the first time and it's become like the most insane uh, looking thing happening, right? And um, I saw, I, I think Jason keeps me up on this, uh, we gave 53 million away in credit cards to illegals over the weekend. I, what's the solution here? Yeah. Oh, and you know, the, the, the question of why it's happening is baffling to me. I mean, the, 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 least, um, the least kind of uh, um, a bad motive, ulterior motive, is that it's just political pettiness. It's a new administration that came in and wanted to do the opposite of what the other guy, what Trump was doing. But it makes no sense. And I, you know, going down there was just, was eye-opening for me. I watched 100, I watched 300 people come in in two hours. The first 110 were from West, young men, military age, were all from West Africa. I expected to see, you know, uh, people from Salvador and Nicaragua, but I didn't see any of them. There was only the whole night, 
there was only two people from Latin or Central America, one from Peru and one from Colombia, and the rest of them were from Asia and Africa. And, you know, a lot of them from China, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, uh, um, Tajikistan, Nepal, Tibet, India, Bangladesh, China. And they all said to me, I, I interviewed 110 of them, and they all said, except for two who had asylum claims, every other one said, I'm here for a job. Well, that's not legal. You, you know, you, you, that's, there's not even any part of that that's legal. If you want a job, you come in the, the, the legal way. But, and they all had TikTok, and they knew exactly what was going to happen to them. The Border Patrol fingerprints them if they don't have the criminal record. The Border Patrol takes them to the airport, to Yuma Airport, puts them on a plane to any destination they choose. If they don't have the money for the flight, the Border Patrol pays it and gets reimbursement from FEMA. Seven million people. It's crazy. How do you fix it? It's easy. First of all, you, you plug the 27 gaps in the wall. You don't need a wall from Brownsville, 2,200 miles from Brownsville, Texas to San Diego. But you do need the wall in the urban areas where, where migrants can disappear in seconds. You need a big physical barrier. And then in the countryside, you need fences, um, you need access roads, and you need um, uh, monitoring equipment. Uh, and in fact, that stuff was all up there, and the Biden administration literally took it down. There was, they had sensors, they had long-range cameras, they had videos, they had nightlights, and it was all removed. And that just opened up this flow. And then what you need to do is uh, reinstate the Migrant Protection Act, which says that people who come to Mexico with an asylum claim from other countries, that they can't come in, that they have to have their asylum claim adjudicated while they remain in Mexico. And that you need to talk to the Mexican government, but they agreed to it before, they'll agree again if we didn't have such bad relationships with them. Um, you know, we need asylum judges at the border to adjudicate the cases there, and we need more border patrol, and we need to give respect to the border patrol. The border patrol is very, very demoralized. And, and they're wrongly uh, vilified. And, uh, and, you know, people don't want to work there anymore because they're so badly vilified. There's nine of them that have committed suicide. A lot of them were military veterans. They're people who wanted to spend their lives serving our country. And we, we need to treat them with respect and with admiration and, um, and let them do their jobs. And, and I would say this very quickly. Um, I'm going to do something on day one, which is I'm going to order the post office and the State Department to issue passport cards to every American that, um, that says they can't afford them for free. A passport card is, is available to any post office in this country if you show pr proof of citizenship. Now, that's going to do three things. There's a, tens of millions of Americans who do not have a government-issued photo ID. Who are they? They're almost all Democrats. And they're, um, they're uh, minorities in our cities who don't need a driver's license. They're students who haven't qualified for a driver's license. And they're elderly for whom their licenses have expired. They're Democratic base. That's why Democrats don't like it when Republicans say, you have to have a voter ID to vote. As the Democrats say, our guys don't have voter IDs. And nobody wants to go and, you know, sit in the, 
with the sadists at the DMV for to get a license and just to vote for you know however long it takes you. Know, you all know what that nightmare. At least I know what that nightmare is like. So, uh, so, um, what? And if you don't have a license in these kind of this country, three things happen. One. You are a second-class citizen. You can't open a bank account. You can't get on an airplane. You can't visit your kid at school. You can't check into a hotel. You, if you, you can't get a bank account, which means that 10% of your social security check and your salary are going to check cashers, which is so being poor makes you poor. Number two, um, the, the, one of the big sources of tensions between Republicans and Democrats are that are there's this photo ID dispute at the voting booth. Well, we've gotten the civil rights leadership, Andrew Young, Al Sharpton, and many others, to agree that if I issue this voter ID, that they will withdraw their objection to the requirement of a voter ID to vote. So everybody can get it. Nobody's got an excuse. And we can now, at the voting booth, say, show us your ID. Number three, right now it's illegal for an employer to employ a illegal alien, but there's a loophole. The only box they have to check is that they saw a social security card. Well, the social security card has no picture on it. It's easily fabricated and forged. And in New York, at the construction sites, they're notoriously passed hand to hand so that the employer can check the box and then he pays everybody in cash and that's it. And so what I'm gonna do, it's I'm gonna say, in order to employ somebody in this country, you need to see a government issued photo ID. And that will shut down the border overnight because all of those people I talked to coming across the border said, I'm here for a job. If everybody in the world knows you cannot get a job, and if the employer's gonna go to jail now if he doesn't check your ID, so they're not gonna do it anymore. And if everybody in the world knows you cannot get a job in the United States of America unless you have a government-issued photo ID and you're a citizen, then they're gonna stop coming across the border. I'll, I'll say this last thing. During the last decade of his life. I worked very closely with Cesar Chavez. Cesar Chavez was, you know, one of my father's closest allies. And um, during the last 10 or 20 years of his life, and I, I was so close to him that his family asked me to be his pallbearer, one of his pallbearers, when he died in 1993. But during the last 20 years of his life, he had two priority issues. One of them was pesticides, and that's why I was working with them, because Hispanic farm workers are disproportionately injured by pesticide exposure. The other big issue he had was closing the border, because he understood at his capacity to leverage good wages and salaries and conditions for his workers was being diminished by the influx of workers that were coming across the border illegally and was giving the, you know, the growers the ability to hire illegals very, very easily and cheaply. So, um, you know, this is a humanitarian issue and it's not a good, I saw what happened to the people at the border. They had been beaten, they had been extorted, they had been exploited, some of them had been raped. I visited a rape center in Yuma, especially designed for children 
because the number of people, that, the, the cartels extract the final payment just before, in fact, there was a tree called the final payment tree, where these rapes take place all the time. And it's children and women, you know, and they, they got, I talked to people whose entire life savings was robbed, you know, they were robbed. It's, and then they come to this country and they can't work. They're given an asylum date seven years from now and they can't work. They end up, you know, in New York City on the street, sleeping on the sidewalk and taking jobs from um, unscrupulous employers at seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven dollars an hour. And it's not a life. And, uh, you know, it's not good for anybody. Everybody, Bobby Kennedy, please. Stand up for Bobby Kennedy.